Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Well, as I said at the start of the service, this is a period before Easter, and we call it Lent. This is a time where we kind of get prepared and ready for Easter. And in this period, uh, in the church here in Peniel, we're going to look for four Sundays at the cross and how it impacts our life. What does the cross mean for us in our everyday life? And we're going to see four things about the cross and what it means. We're going to see that it means forgiveness, it means freedom, it means family, and it means fairness. And each one of those truths that we're going to look at are going to line up with a theological word to help us to understand it better. So we're going to look at the themes of justification, redemption, adoption, and propitiation. They're the four themes that we're going to look at. And if you think, well, I don't know what they mean, well, hopefully by the end of these four weeks, we'll know something of what those words mean and how. They're not just theological words for us to understand, but they're something that's of glorious truth that can help us deeply in our situation now. So today we're looking at that, this theme of forgiveness. And really deeper and richer than forgiveness is this word justification. Now, to help us think of the relevance of justification, I want you to think through this with me. How much have you thought about what other people think about you this week? How much have you thought about what others think about you this week? Perhaps that's affected how you dress and what you put on. Maybe it's affected how you've spoken or how you've acted, how you've thought, how you've worried, the, thing, the burdens that you carry. How often have you thought of what other people think this week? Maybe it's affected how you've dealt with social media or put things on social media or not put things on social media because you're concerned about what other people think about you and other people's opinion. I wonder whose opinion matters to you most today. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your parents or your children or your grandchildren. Maybe it's your friends or your co-workers. We're all influenced, aren't we, by what other people think. But the Bible reminds us today that there's ultimately one opinion that matters. One opinion, and that is the opinion of God. How does God view you today? How does God view you today? You see, we can pretend or we can project any kind of person we want to to those around us, can't we? We can pretend to be someone, uh, we can put on the smile, even if we're struggling, or we can pretend to be whoever we want to be. We can wear a mask. But that's not the real us. See, God sees beyond the mask. And the amazing thing is this. He still invites us today to be forgiven and to be accepted by him. Even though he sees through all the facade, all the pretense, he sees who we really are. So what does God think of us? How can we be accepted by God? Well, that's one of the themes that Romans chapters 1 to 4 deal with. Uh, so Romans chapter 1 to 4, just to give us a quick update on them, because we're jumping into chapter 5 this morning, is saying this. It's saying something that we all know deep down. Every single human, every one of us, we have failed. We have failed to keep God's standard. We have failed to keep his law. You know, we know that there's laws of physics in this world, don't we? If I were to hold something up here and drop it, it would fall because of the law of gravity. It's just there. We know it's there. The law of physics are all around us, even though we don't realize they're there. 
Well, the Bible says there's actually another kind of law around us as well. And that's a moral law that God has kind of built into us and into this world. There is right and there is wrong, and God has designed it that way. And we see that in the Bible. And when we go against that moral law, we know we're going to feel guilty. We will know deep down that we have done wrong. And so today, every one of us, we failed. We've failed to reach God's standards and we have let him down and let others down. Perhaps you've tried to ignore the guilt. Perhaps you've tried to push it to the side or push it down. But the reality is it shows up in different ways in our life. And maybe today you are just aware of a guilt that you carry. Things you've done in the past that you know are wrong. Things that you've said or things you haven't done. You know, we have all failed. And that's what Romans 1 to 4 is telling us. All have sinned and we all fall short of God's glory. We've put ourselves in God's position. We've said, God, I'm going to decide what's right and wrong. Now, you know, don't you, that you can't just pretend to be a policeman and go on the street and kind of say to somebody, oh, you can't do that, I'm going to arrest you. What would happen if you pretended to be a policeman? Well, you, in fact, would be arrested yourself. You can't do it. You can't pretend to be the law. But the problem with God is we have pretended to be him. And we have tried to decide what is right and what is wrong. And so we've committed this cosmic treason against God. So naturally, this is us. We've fallen short. We are not right with God. And so Romans helps us deal with this question of, well, how can I be? How can I be accepted? How can I be right? If I can't be good enough for God, if I can't keep his law, if I fail this moral law that's all around, what hope is there? Now, chapter 5 comes with this as this kind of shining light to say there is hope. There is a way for us to be right with God. And what Jesus did on the cross makes it possible today for us to be forgiven and to be right with God. So to understand how we can be right with God today, justified, we're going to look at this theme through three headings. The first is, let's look to the past. Okay, we're going to look to the past. Now, verse 1 tells us there in Romans 5, Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith. Since we have been justified by faith. Now, justified is a legal word. It's a once and for all act. It's something that God does to somebody who puts their trust in Jesus. It means to be made right before God. Just right. It is made right before God. And it happens to somebody as soon as they put their trust in Jesus. As soon as you trust in Jesus, you are right with him. Naturally, as I said earlier, all of us have failed and we stand guilty before God. But God knows that we can't make ourselves right. He knows that we cannot, on our own, uh, be right before him. So we keep on failing. We keep on falling. So God has provided a way, separate from the law, apart from the law, to be right with him. How? Well, Jesus came. And Jesus lived the life that we have failed to live. In every way we failed, the Lord Jesus lived the perfect life. And when he died on the cross, he was taking our punishment for what we have done wrong, for that cosmic treason. He was taking the blame. And when we realize that we cannot make ourselves right with God, and when we go to Jesus and admit our failure and say, I have failed, I cannot do this, then... Jesus' righteousness, his perfection is credited, is given 
to us. It's put in our account. We get given his righteousness, his righteousness. And that is something that is once and for all. You are justified if you trust in Jesus. You are right with him today. And that's why in Romans 8, verse 1, it says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because when you put your trust in him, everything that was true for him then becomes true for you. You are forgiven. You are made righteous. You are declared fit for heaven because of what Jesus has done. See, on the cross, Jesus was taking what we deserved so we could receive what he deserved. That's the great exchange that happens on the cross. I know I've said this illustration before, but I can't better it, so I'm going to use it again. Warren Wearsby uses it. And he says, I, I don't think it's true, but this man um, had a Rolls Royce. Okay? And this Rolls Royce was his pride and joy, uh, and he was very proud of it. He drove it everywhere. And anyway, he ended up driving it to Europe. And uh, driving it around Europe, sadly, one day his Rolls Royce broke down. So he tried to start it, nothing. He lifted the bonnet, you know, as you do. People came around to look, and well, nobody knew what to do. He was stuck. So what did he do? Well, he phoned up Rolls Royce, and he said, I've got this problem with this car. And he said, don't worry, we're going to send out an engineer. He'll come out on the airplane, and he'll come and fix it, and you'll be all set to go. So this man came, this engineer came. He came to fix the car, came to put it right, and then uh, flew back. And at the back of this man's mind, he said, I'm glad the car's fixed, but the bill, dear me, is going to be big. So anyway, he got back home, waiting for the post to come, waiting for the bill for this engineer that was flown out, and it didn't come. The week after, it still hadn't come. A week again, it hadn't come. So he phoned them up, and he said, I phoned Rolls-Royce and said, um, look, I, I had a problem with my car, and we flew somebody out to fix it, and I'm waiting for the bill, and nothing's come through. And the person on the phone said this, uh, dear sir, there's no record of any wrong ever happening in any Rolls Royce. No record of any wrong ever happening in any Rolls Royce. Now again, I don't think it's true. But the idea is this. When you put your trust in Jesus, in heaven, it's as if God says to you, there is no record of any wrong in any child of God. Because the righteousness of Jesus is credited to your account. Because there's a filing system in heaven, as it were. You could pick out your file. What's in there? The righteousness of Jesus, all his perfection, and it is now given to you. So if you're trusting in Jesus today, by faith, that is when we trust in him, we can be made right. Not by works, not by a religious action, but by what Jesus has done for us. Now, this is how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. He spent weeks and weeks looking at Romans 5. We're doing it in, in half an hour. So we're, we're not going to touch everything, but this is how he sums up this truth. We can put it this way. The man who has faith is the man who is no longer look, looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not even look at what he hopes to be as a result of his own efforts. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and he rests on that alone. He has ceased to say, Ah, yes, I've committed terrible sins, but I've done this and that. He stops saying that. If he goes on saying that, he hasn't got faith. Faith speaks in an entirely different manner and makes a man say, Yes, I have sinned grievously. I have lived a life of sin, yet I know that I am a child of God because I'm not resting on my own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
and God has put that to my account. Now today, if you're not a Christian, if you're not trusting in Jesus, the Bible, is the assessment of the Bible is quite clear. We're not right before him. We're not accepted by God automatically. But he has done everything possible for you to be right with him. And that's all you have to do is say, forgive me, Lord. Forgive me, Jesus. And you will be forgiven and you will be made right before God. All the wrong you've done taken away. All that guilt and shame uh, thrown to the deepest part of the ocean. And if you are a believer, can you see what this means for you today? Your, st- your standing before God is dealt with. It's sorted. You are justified. So it's forgiveness and some. Okay, so your wrong is, is, is taken away. But then your right, the righteousness of Christ is given to you. And that means that your position before God doesn't go up and down based on how you feel. If you've had a bad week, it doesn't mean that God loves you any less than he does on the, on the best of weeks. Because your righteousness is based on the righteousness of Jesus, not you. And can you see the freedom and the joy uh, and the gloriousness of that message? He's done it all. Once and for all. Justified. Now, Paul then uh, goes on to say, look, that's what's happened in the past. But it doesn't just affect our past. It ha- helps us right now. So let's look. We've thought about the past. Let's look at the present. In verse 1 it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So justification means that you have been made right with God. It's something that has happened in the past. It is sorted. It is dealt with. But now Paul says, but look what that means for you now. It means, first of all, you have peace with God. Peace with God. Now, that is not saying we have the peace of God. Do you see that in verse 1? It's peace with God. So it's not a subjective thing. It's not that I feel like I'm at peace with God. I feel like I'm not at peace with God. No, he's saying you have it. It is it. Because of what Jesus has done, you're you're peaceful with God. But you see what that means too? If you think, what's the opposite of peace? The opposite of peace is war. So without Jesus, without being saved, we're at war with God. We're at war with him. How? Now think about the beginning of the message when we thought we were rebels against him. We were claiming the kingship. We were kind of pretending to be him. We were deciding the rights and wrongs. And if two people claim kingship over one thing, what happens? Well, there's a war. There's a battle. Once again, this isn't something that we can lose. When you trust in Jesus, you have peace with God. Jesus has taken the hostility away, and now we're friends with him. Now, do you realize this morning, if you're a Christian, you're at peace with God? Isn't that a wonderful thing to rejoice in? Isn't that something we can take for granted? Instead of waking up thinking, does God love me today? You know, how have I done? The Bible tells us that because of Jesus, there is not now a cloud between you and God. And every morning you wake up, it's the same. So you're right with him, we're accepted, we are, there is peace with God. Whatever else is going on in your life right now, rejoice in this, you have peace with God. Maybe you're not a Christian and you just long to know that you're okay with God, that things will be okay. Maybe you start to think about your 
mortality. And you start to think, well, soon it's going to be my time. Am I ready to meet with God? But look what this is saying. We can have peace with God through what Jesus has done. We don't have to be uncertain about what's next, but we can know I'm right with him. So that's the first thing. Look, because we've been justified, we have peace with God. But look what we're told next. Also, we're told that through him, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we stand in a position of grace. We are in a position, grace meaning God's undeserved favour and love for you. God's undeserved favour and love. And so that means that we stand in a position of benefiting from God's grace and kindness. So anything that comes into our life now comes through this filter and we receive through the love and the heart of God's goodness. Nothing that comes into our life doesn't go through that filter. It's all because of God's love and kindness. And it's speaking here, look, we can be in this position, we can have access to God, we have um, we are friends with him, and there we are. Now there's a famous picture that I've put up here. Can you see who that is? That is um, John JFK, John F. Kennedy, the President of America. And there he is sitting in the Oval Office in, Amer- in um, Washington. And there he is sitting in the Oval Office. But if you zoom out a bit, we can see something under his chair. Can you see that? There's a child there. Think, how can a child have access to the Oval Office? Why can a child be playing under the desk of the most powerful man in the whole universe? In the whole universe, sorry. In the whole country, in the whole world at the time. How can a man, how can a child have access to that? Because that's his son. That's his son. So a child has access to the, that place because he comes because of his father. Well, in the same way, we now have access to the grace of God, the realm of grace because of Jesus and what he's done for us. This is the grace in which we stand. See, often people think of Christianity like floors. You know, you, you work yourself up to a certain level and then you have access. But actually here, it's more like doors. We just have access to the grace of God through the Father because of Jesus. Where do you stand today? The Bible says you stand in grace. You stand in his love. What a blessing. And notice it's, you stand there. You don't crawl. You don't kind of tiptoe in. There's a confidence, an assurance. Yes, I'm his. I'm at peace with God. And now I stand in the boldness of the name of Jesus. So our our past says, you have been justified. Our present says, uh, look, now you have access to God. You have um, this access to God's grace uh, into this uh, standing grace and also you have peace with God but let's finish by thinking well what difference does this make we've thought about the past about the present let's think about the future let's what difference does it make well look at verse 2 through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now that means this. There is a joy. There is a rejoicing. Because we know that one day. We will see him in glory. There is a joy and a rejoicing. Because we know for sure. Because we stand in grace. That we are on our way to be with him forever. That's why as we thought about earlier in the service. Um, Fanny Crosby could say. I can't wait to see Jesus. And I know I'm going. Because I'm trusting only in him. There is a joy because of that. 
uh, and we can taste more of him now. Now, some people might think, well, it's arrogant, isn't it, to say I'm going to heaven and I know for sure I'm going there. But the point is here, it's not down to us. It's not down to our works. It's down to what God has done to us and for us by saving us. He says here, um, we can rejoice in hope. That is not like a, I hope it doesn't rain. It is a, a sure and certain hope that Jesus will not let us down, that we are his and that we're accepted. We get to heaven not by our works, but by trusting in Jesus. We are right with God because of what he has done. And doesn't that bring us great hope? We don't have to doubt our future. We know the ending of a Christian's life. And that is why it is so wonderful in a funeral here to be able to stand up and speak with somebody who's died and we know they're trusting in Jesus. We can say, we know they're with God. Not just, here is how good they were and we hope they're good enough. But no, they trusted not in themselves but in Jesus. And Jesus has taken them there. You see, because Jesus has done it all, who gets the glory? Who gets the praise? Well, it's him, isn't it? And so in heaven, our rejoicing and our celebrating is all about Jesus. He is at the center, not, oh, look how good I am that I've made it here. He's done it all. So we can be sure of our position, sure of our future because of Jesus. And doesn't that make all the difference to here and now? If you know where you're going, then suddenly it frees you. You don't have to worry, you don't have to fear, but you're free to serve and love others. Free to pour out your life for others and for Jesus in this life now. So that's the future. But, as we know, we're not there yet, are we? Now some of us are closer to others and we don't know who that is. At any point, any of us could be taken. And we need to make sure we're right with him. But between heaven and now, what's going to happen? Well, Paul wants to deal with that because he knows, in a few verses here, he knows that there's going to be struggles and there's going to be trials and there's going to be suffering. So he wants to help us with that. Look at what we, he goes on to say. We rejoice because of we know we're going where we're going. We're going to the hope of this glory. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. What an, uh, an amazing thing to say. We rejoice in our suffering. How can... Paul say that we can rejoice in our suffering. Here is a world that is full of darkness and struggles and strife. Here is suffering all around us. And yet, Paul says, but, but we can rejoice. How? Well, because the suffering that we go through isn't pointless. It is not random. It is part of God's kindness and his work for us. He can use all things for our good and his glory. He says, look, you will face grief. You will face loss. You will face disappointment. But the way you view suffering, because you're trusting in Jesus, before you get to heaven, is totally changed. It is not just random. It is not just uh, pointless. But God uses it. We're in the realm of grace, remember. We're standing in grace. So everything that comes at us has been filtered by his grace and love and is only going to work for our good. Notice it doesn't say we rejoice for the suffering. So important. We don't rejoice for them, but in them. In them. You see, our suffering and the suffering that you're going through now breaks the heart of God too. Remember how God made the world? He made it with no sadness or sickness or pain or suffering. That's not how God intended it to be. It breaks his heart. 
that God can redeem and use the sorrow and the sadness that I would do. Look at what we're told in verse 4. It says that knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. You see, God can use the sufferings and the struggles for our good because he loves us. Do you remember the story of a, it's a fairy tale about a wicked witch who lived in this remote cottage in the middle of a forest. And travellers would come through and they'd be looking for somewhere to lodge and um, she would offer them a meal, she would offer them a bed and um, it was really the most wonderful bed you've ever seen. Like you might get lost in the woods and there, there is this house and you find this bed and it's so comfortable. But this bed was also full of magic. And if you were asleep with it, while when the sun came up, you'd be turned to stone, turned into a statue. So you'd be a figure in the, the kind of witch's statue that she had covered throughout her garden. There was a little girl who was forced to wo- work for this witch and um, she had no power to resist the witch. Uh, she was doing whatever the witch told her to do. But one day this young man came in and he was going down to lie down for bed, to, for sleep. And the servant go- girl just couldn't bear to see another person turned to stone. So what did she do? In this comfortable bed, she put, started to put sticks. So this man would try and sleep, but he couldn't because a stick was sticking into his side. He pulled that one out and then he, he found another stick and he just couldn't get a good night's sleep at all. And, you know, he kind of slept a bit and woke up, slept a bit and woke up. And before the sun had got up, he was wide awake. And as he walked out the front door, uh, the servant girl met him and he really told her off. He said, how could you give a traveller such a terrible bed full of sticks and stones? And he went on his way. But this is what she said. Ah, she said under her breath. The misery you know now is nothing like the infinitely greater misery of the comfortable sleep would have brought upon you. Those were my sticks and stones of love. See, God can put sticks and stones of love into our life, into our heart, to wake us up to things that we wouldn't have been aware of otherwise. Suffering and struggles can bring us and show us more about the glory of Jesus than than comfort ever will. And I'm sure that many in here can say that, that you have learnt more about Jesus in your times of struggle and trial than you have in years of comfort. In weeks of of struggles and trials, you can know a nearness and a presence of Jesus that years of comfort you've never known. See, God uses these things for his glory. And look what it goes on to say. Um, We know that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that he has given us. See, the pressure we go through in trials teaches us to make and makes us stronger. It is something that is painful and it hurts, but God uses it to produce in us uh, and to make us more like Jesus. So that means even in suffering, there is hope. It's not pointless. What is God teaching you? What is God showing you? So when we suffer, you know, Paul's saying, look, there's, there's glorious hope for the future, but I know there's going to be struggles now, but that's not pointless because you stand in grace and you're receiving God's kindness even through this. But maybe you might think, well, how can I be sure that all this is true? Now we've heard about the truth of being justified and right with God. We've heard about the truth of the future and the glory that is to come. I heard that I am at peace with God and I stand in grace, but how can I be sure? 
Well, there's two ways that Paul shows us here. The first is an inward way. You see at the end of verse 5, he says, the love of God has been poured into our hearts by his Spirit. So there's an inward assurance of love that God gives us by his Spirit. There's times when you as a Christian will know that God just draws close. He reminds you of his love and he just, you just know I'm loved by him. That is the work of his Spirit. That is what he does. He reminds us who he is and what he's done and how much God loves us. He makes it real to our hearts. So instead of us just hearing the words, I love you, it's like he picks us up and gives us a hug and says, I love you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But as well as an inward reminder, there's also an outward reminder. Look at verses 6 to the end. Look at what this is telling us. It's telling us all about the cross. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows us his love us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from his wrath. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. What's it saying? How can I be sure that this is all true? Look at the cross. Look at the cross of Jesus. Don't take your eyes from the cross. Every day we need to come to the foot of the cross and remind us what he's done for us. The argument here is that, you know, to die for somebody shows great love. Perhaps you would die for somebody you love and somebody who's a good person, but you wouldn't die for somebody who's an evil enemy of yours, would you? But look what Jesus did. He died for us when we were at our worst, when we were enemies of him. That's how much he loves you. He loves you dearly. He's seen you at your worst, and he loves you still. All the pretense we put on for other people, the, p- the people we pretend to be, God sees beyond that, and he still says, I love you. That is real, deep, rich love. How can I be sure this is true? How can I be sure he loves me? How can I be sure I'm right with God? We look at the cross. We keep looking at the cross. So how does God view you this morning? The most important person, the most important being, how does he view you? Well, if you're trusting in Jesus, you are right with God. You are justified. You are just before him, made right. You are forgiven. It has all been dealt with. Rejoice in that today. And if you haven't yet put your trust in him, you can be made right with him today. Not by climbing a ladder, not by trying to reach some um, level of religious activity, but by leaning on Jesus and trusting in all he's done for you. He has done it all. Keep trusting, keep following, and keep remembering what the cross has achieved for us. What difference does the cross make? Well, we've seen today, you can be right with him right now. And if you're trusting in him, that is you. Standing in grace. Let's rejoice in that together. We're going to sing in a few moments about how the work of the cross is finished. But before we do that, let's spend a few moments just in silence, reflecting and thinking on what difference this will make for our lives.
Father in heaven, we thank you for the great message of hope that the gospel brings. We thank you that Jesus lived the life we could never live, died the death we deserve to die, so that we could be assured of that hope of glory. And in the meantime, stand in grace, knowing that whatever comes at us, it is becoming, it can be used by you for your, uh, for your glory and our good. Please, Lord, would you help us to rejoice together now as we sing in response to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>